Welcome to Ascend Sounds, a podcast developed by the creators of the Women in Technology World series, featuring thought-provoking episodes from guest speakers sharing their lessons, ideas and advice across career, diversity, technology and business. Welcome to Ascend Sessions. My name is Joao and I am a content producer here at Ascend and my pronouns are he, him. In this episode, I am delighted to be joined by Rachel Reese and Emma Custin from Global Butterflies, who have been working tirelessly to bring awareness of trans and non-binary issues to the business sector. 2020 has posed a number of challenges for the trans community. Legally, politically and culturally, the trans community is consistently under attack with their very existence debated and freedom to navigate through life denied at any possible moment. In this episode, Rachel and Emma will be taking us through a Trans Inclusion 101, breaking down terminology, perceptions, and actions that we can all take into becoming better allies. So hi, Rachel and Emma. Hi. Hello. How are you? Yeah, not too bad, thank you. How are you both? We're good. We're We're good. good. Yes, we're very well, thank you. We're so glad to be here. No, thank you so much for taking time to speak with us. Um, so I guess the best place to start off, uh, how about you give a bit of introduction into uh, yourselves and also into Global Butterflies? Sure. So uh, my name is uh, Rachel Reese. I'm uh, a trans woman that um, runs um, CEO of Global Butterflies. Um, my background is what is that I was an aerospace engineer that um, in the 80s that retrained as a lawyer in the 90s. We became an operations director um, and then set up um, Global Butterflies, a diversity company. This is somebody searching out the right career. <laughs> um, and Global Butterflies was formed five years ago initially to um, work with law firms on trans and non-binary inclusion in the workplace. But um, as time has gone on, we have um, expanded with Emma joining the business um, to banking insurance um, and investment companies at marketing and advertising. And now we work in all sectors and in many different countries now. So we are, um, a small subject has become quite a big agenda. Hi, it's Emma Custin here. Really delighted to be here. Um, I, my background is uh, I've got 30 years experience within human resources, typically within large uh, corporations, uh, mainly financial services, uh, banking and insurance. Um, and as Rachel said, I joined Global Butterflies about two years ago um, to really help us um, in this mission. Amazing. Thank you so much, both. Um, so as I, as I mentioned in the introduction, this is a, a Trans Inclusion 101. So just to help out some of the listeners who aren't aware, uh, could you break down and give some insight into some common terminology, in, uh, including gender identity and gender expression, cisgender? Of course. So the, in, I mean, in the trans and non-binary space, we have 150 gender identities and expressions, and they are expanding every day, which is wonderful. Um, the younger generation find really great ways to describe their gender identity and they, how they express. The big problem with our terminology is it's not necessarily agreed. So, and a lot of corporate companies struggle with understanding that terminology. We see you know, policies with 80, 80 or 90 terms at the back and not much about how they want to treat their trans and non-binary people. Um, so we often tell people not to start with the, the, the language, but to start with people with their name and their pronouns and their, you know, their, their title, that kind of thing. And then gen- actually with gender identity, that comes a little bit later. The gender identity is their innate sense of self. So my innate gender identity is female. Um, 
And but I don't go around yelling that at people when I meet them. I they usually get my name and we get to know each other. We don't ask for birth certificates when we meet. I think gender identity tends to come with friendship, time, or being a good co-employee. Um, because if somebody tells you they're transgender, that doesn't give you a great deal of information. Transgender means that your gender identity is different from your sex assigned at birth. But what does that mean to that person? It comes a little bit later with your knowledge and their friendship. Now, transgender is the most common term, as I've said, um, gender identity different from your sex assigned at birth. But obviously, um, another term you might have heard is non-binary, um, gender identity between male and female, not exclusively male, not exclusively female. That's the, you know, I think the greater number of the trans community are non-binary. Now, the biggest problem with our terminology is that not every non-binary person sees themselves as transgender. And often people use transgender as an umbrella term, which it, some, it doesn't really work if, if, everybody, if half the people in it aren't transgender. And transgender, more complicated, has been shortened to trans. And that's our umbrella term. And yet lots of people in it aren't transgender. So you can see the language doesn't really fit. It's really good to get to know the person's name, title and pronouns. And the, the language comes a little bit later. So we often teach in our training that gender identity is quite important. That You know, that's your programming. You know, um, you know your sex assigned, sex assigned at birth is basically, you know, your physical attribute assigned to you by a doctor holding you up and looking at your genitals and saying that's a boy or a girl. That doesn't really, that's in the NHS will still see my body as a male body, but my gender identity, my programming, if my gender identity, if my sex assigned at birth is sort of like my physical hardware, my laptop, let's say my programming, my gender identity is my operating system, Windows, you know, kind of or Unix or my Mac operating system. So it's my innate programming, who or how I am. I could be non-binary, gender fluid, trans-masculine, trans-feminine. And gender expression is just my crispy outer coating of that gender identity. So my voice, my pronouns, my name, my paperwork, the way I live my life, my role in the, how I express that is my outer expression. And, and not everybody in the trans and non-binary community express their gender identity because they don't feel safe to do so. Now, cisgender is a word well, really means just basically, it's, it's a word that's not terribly popular with some people, um, but it basically means non-trans. You're not trans. Basically, your, ident your gender identity is the same as your sex assigned at birth. Um, and it's becoming a bit of a contentious word with the anti-trans anti -trans movement, but it basically means non-trans. Hope that helped. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. Thank you. Um, in the US, where um, the stat is only one, one in 10 Americans uh, uh, know a, a trans person. Mm -hmm. um, and without that awareness or uh, representation, a lot of people wouldn't necessarily know uh, some of the challenges and common obstacles that a tra trans person would uh, face. Uh, could you just share a bit of insight in, into what that could look like? Yes, it's Emma here. Um, I think it's a great question. Um, there are quite a few, so <laughs> let's just go through them. The biggest major um, challenge is acceptance for who you are. So, you know, coming out and telling your family, your friends, your workplace can at times be very daunting and also be very challenging, you know, depending on the acceptance of your family, friends and work colleagues. Um, so that, in a one way, is a major step. And people use people's own journey as their own journey. We say no two transitions are the same. But ultimately, whether you're trans or non-binary, telling people you love about you is quite challenging, especially if there's not been a conversation in that setting previously. We also talk quite a lot around um, medical transition. For those that medically want to transition, 
that can be a huge challenge as well, depending on where people are located. So here in the UK, you know, there are huge challenges with medical transition in terms of accessibility. Um, the typical approach is for people to go and see their GP um, as the first step. Now, here in the UK, we do not train our GPs in gender identity or gender expression. There's nothing formal in the British Medical Association training. So it can be a bit of a lottery. You know, you can get some GPs that are really good and some GPs who are quite the opposite. Um, so that's typically your first step. And then the next step is to be referred to a gender identity clinic. Um, and there's a number throughout the UK. Depending on where you live regionally, the waiting times um, can be very long. Um, we've heard of wait list times for your first appointment of up to four years, uh, depending on where you live. So you've made this big decision personally, and then you, through our current UK system, have to wait and wait, and dare I say, wait some more. Um, so that's, that has implications, we believe. You know, that has implications for people's mental health, um, we often talk, unfortunately, about self-harm and suicide for people who are you know, waiting for that medical support and social support. And for me, you know, if I think of the listeners here, um, you know, a great thing is around just that generational parenting. You know, how, how I was parented is different to how maybe people in generations below me are parenting, which is a more inclusive parenting. So for parents having conversations that are open, creating that very supportive environment for people to be themselves um, is amazing. Just coming back to the sort of wait lists, we are seeing with society changing um, more people expressing themselves, which is putting even more pressure on those wanting on wait um, on the NHS wait list times um, as people want to seek that see that medical help. Um, so there can be a lot of challenges uh, for trans people. There's also the legal framework, and we may touch that as we go through this um, through this um, conversation. But ultimately, in different jurisdictions around the world, there are different legal frameworks that people have to also navigate as well in terms of your civil rights. Um, so knowing where you stand on that is equally a challenge because it can also be frustrating in some jurisdictions where you effectively have no civil rights. Absolutely. Thank you so much for, for sharing that, Emma. Um, it's always quite difficult to believe that it's only been a year since being transgender was declassified as a um, medical disorder from the World Health Organization. Yes. I mean, it, it's funny because obviously the, in, in the diagnosis in the UK with the gender identity clinics is gender dysphoria. Um, and we're not, you know, we're not super happy about that diagnosis and you know a lot of the gender identity clinics were were linked to mental health services if that's beginning to change but really i think nobody knows their gender identity better than the person themselves and i think that you know that it would be good if we if, you know move towards a sort of system like an island of self-identification you know not everybody has medical treatment to transition because you already know what your gender identity is. I knew I was from four years old. So I think the fact is a simple process. We don't really want gatekeepers telling us who we are, and especially if they're in the medical profession. You only need to access the medical profession if you need to have surgical procedures or support in counselling. Otherwise, people should just be able to get on with their lives and, and, and you know, like changing 
changing our name with Depol or, you know, changing our gender marker or you know, just like getting married or joining the military. This should be just a simple process. Um, and I, I'm not quite sure why it is that non-trans people want to make it so difficult for us. One of the, one of the things that we really want listeners to uh, to take away, away from this podcast is look at their workspaces um, and also the wider community and really identify how they can be more inclusive of uh, trans people. What would you like to see from, from the workplace? So we often talk about signs and signals in organisations. Um, you know, your organisation, with, with a number of trans people, you know, it could be about 4% of your workforce on the gender identity spectrum. And if you're a millennial, that could be 12% of your millennial workforce um, could be non-binary. So you've got a lot of people in your organisation, if they're not visible, you're doing something wrong. Um, and so we often say, look, what are those signs and signals? And some of those are that you have your senior leadership are supporting trans and non-binary people. And that might be that they march in pride or they come to the ally or LGBT meeting. Um, so that's a really good signal. Um, and a lot of people that we support in the workplace that transition say they did that because they saw their senior manager front and center on LGBT rights. Um, obviously, you know, we often tell candidates applying to firms to go and sit in the reception and look out for things like, is there an all gender loo in the reception? Um, are you seeing any lanyards or posters? Um, what does their application form look like? If there's only two genders on it, well, then they haven't done any work in the trans or non-binary space. Um, you know, do they celebrate any of the trans calendar events like trans awareness week? Um, do, um, you know, have they ever, ever said anything positive about the trans or non-binary community in any of their social media ever? So go and look at their Twitter account. What signals have they ever said anything positive? Um, and then look at them at website. Is there, are there trans or non-binary faces coming back at you? Is there, when you're sitting in reception, having a cup of coffee, watching everybody come and go, just have a look, see if there's any um, gender neutral clothing. Is there a variance in workwear? So many signals that an organization can send out to the job market. Look at the adverts as well. Look, are the adverts gender neutral? Um, are they inclusive in the way that they, uh, the way that they draft? So um, those, uh, those signs of signals are sent inwards to people that want to transition and outwards to people that you might attract into your recruitment pr um, processes. And I, you know, that's a that's a very brief summary, <laughs> a, re a very long part of our training. Yes. yes. Um, I also think that you know the workplace in itself can be quite binary and quite gendered. Mm. So removing that language um, and just thinking around some easy things to do. So opening meetings, saying everybody welcome, ladies and gentlemen. Yeah. Rather, uh, sorry, saying welcome everybody instead of welcome ladies and gentlemen just the small signals and signs that actually you want to be more inclusive i think um are really great small steps absolutely and what advice would you have for uh cisgender people or people who uh, uh want, want to be allies to support their trans colleagues i would actually say advice for for anybody who wants to support their their allies whether you're part of the lgbt plus community or not um i think a lot of it is around just doing some education and learning. So go and find out about this subject for yourself and make your own decisions. You know, if you type uh, into Google or look on YouTube, there's many great resources and videos and articles out there for you to help. The other step is to talk to a trans or non-binary person and, and ask them, is it okay to ask them questions? Have a conversation. If the answer coming back to that question is no, then don't steam in like you've never interacted with a human being before. <laughs> um, 
If the answer is no, then don't answer the questions. If the answer is a yes, then treat that person with respect and ask them questions that enhances your learning. I also think the power of conversations and the power of um, those, I call it the water cooler moments, just having a conversation with a colleague or with a family and friend, making a positive statement about trans and non-binary issues is amazing where that can go. So, you know, we'll probably touch as we get into this conversation about the different levels of allyship, but ultimately the first step is to educate yourself. Um, you don't need to go from hero to from zero to hero overnight, but learning a little bit about this subject with positive intention and making those positive small comments and small steps is a great way to start that process of allyship. What would you say there are uh, some questions that you should never ask a trans person? Well, that's a really good question. Um, I mean, the weird questions that people ask me are, um, which loo I use? Do you use the all gender loo or do I use the girls loo? Um, have I had any surgery? Um, which is, I find a bit weird. What was my old name is very popular. Could I, what was your old name? Um, comes in quite a lot. Um, a lot of our non-binary friends get pigeonholed, so they say, you're non-binary, so are you a he or a she? That often happens to them quite often, and they go, well, I'm non-binary. People like try to pigeonhole you into their frame of the world, um, which is a very strange question. They're also, also what I call the blurt outs, um, where it's not really a question, but they, they kind of look at you. I mean, one of the, somebody actually walked up to me and said, oh, you look really good, Rachel. You really do, but I can tell you used to be a man which is just wow um and that you know that sometimes that happens people disengage their brains and just blurt out something um i don't know if any of you got any others that weird ones yeah i think i think it's about um thinking about the question you're asking and if it was asked to you how would you feel mm. um so you know just that little pause in your brain before you ask a question <laughs> would i feel comfortable being asked this mm. you know we were we were at a wedding recently where um, one of the guests came up to me and said um, um, so uh, what are you um, what You're... do I call you um, and I said I, my name's Emma yeah I need to know what you are well my name's Emma yeah. and I'm in a blue dress no no I really need to know what you are and and, and you know if you step back from that conversation and say, actually, how would that person feel as if they were being challenged in that way um, and being asked those questions? So for me, being having the respect for the individual that they're a human being and thinking around, actually, how would I feel if somebody said, you know, your surgery, did it hurt? Um, and I want to know the details. Um, thinking about the questions, thinking about being respectful for the person and thinking about um, would I feel comfortable being asked those questions? Yeah. In terms of being an ally for the trans community, how would you identify an ally? Well, an ally um, for me, or what I call is good co-employee or stroke good, decent human being, um, they are all, <laughs> they're all one and the same. Um, allies, uh, their first skill set is knowing when, for me, when to stand behind me and let me do my own and be my own voice. Sometimes I need them to stand alongside me and help me fight an issue. And occasionally when it gets tough, I need them to stand in front of me 
um, and that you know right now we we do need allies almost to be human shields because the trans community is under a massive attack in the UK at the moment. But allies really do understand the issues they're taking on. It's, it's an active role. It's not passive. You don't just put a lanyard on and go, I'm an ally. You have to be active. You have to understand the cause you're taking on. You have to understand, you know, for, do your own research. Don't expect a trans person to educate you because we're already fighting our own fight. We haven't got time to sit down and take you through the issues. You can use Google. You can read all the things that's happening to us. I always tell allies not to re- believe everything they're reading in the UK media, for instance, because it's mostly untrue or negative. Um, we sometimes need them to march alongside us. We sometimes need them. There's lots of surveys the government are doing with, it feels like it's very sinister motives. We're getting our allies to fill those surveys into us right now. There's a couple of surveys going. We ask our allies to fill those in um, uh, on our behalf because we're doing them as well. So we're asking, and you know, that will work at the, at the, the several levels of allyship, which Emma will mention in a moment. So allies are great, have to be great listeners. When I was transitioning, you know, nobody in the, in the organization really knew. I only told a couple of people. And then you know what? They kept my secret, which was really good. I, that gave me breathing space to, to talk to some people when I was having a bad day. And allies can save a person's life because sometimes, you, can, you know, outside work, it may not be going well, but you can come in, sit down with somebody that's really sympathetic, an ally, good co-employee. And, and they'll listen and you might be saving a life. You don't know what the effect you're having on that person by just giving them your time. Emma. And, and I, think, you know, I think that leads us probably on nicely on to the different levels of allyship and the different types mm. within it. So for me, there's personal allies and personal you know, individuals being great allies. And there are shades within that, you know, so somebody who wants to be an ally, a small act of just sharing this conversation with one other person, that's an ally behavior, you know, all the way up to individual allies who want to be more sort of activist allies, you know, they want to write to the MP, they want to support uh, causes actively, do more. And so I think for, for allies, personal allies, we find people go on their own journey. You know, they, they do a bit of research, they maybe do something small, and then they do a bit more, bit more research, and they, you know, they do a little bit more. As, as Rachel said, it's a verb rather than a noun. Um, and then they do a lot, lot more. You know, we have one ally friend who, who is a gay man, but he is always on forums and doing research and sharing information and is out there sort of actively doing it. And for me, it's around every person finding actually, why does this matter to me? Why am I doing this? What steps can I do that might be small, but actually have a big impact? So for me, there's that conversation as a personal ally. Um, What can I do? And not to beat yourself up, you know, you're not going to go from zero to hero overnight. And it's a journey that you go through when you become more active and more and more uh, vocal. As Rachel said, you know, knowing when to stand behind, stand beside and stand in front. I also think then there's um, for LGBT plus networks in organisations, there is a form of allyship there. You know, as a network, they can come together within a workplace with their sponsors and internal allies and do something more together as as network allies um, to support trans and non-binary people who work in those organizations who want to work in those organizations as well and then i think um one area uh, 
which we sometimes forget about is is large corporates being a corporate ally themselves and lending their weight and their voice as corporate allies to trans and non-binary people. Um, we've seen um, some large organisations become very vocal in this and some organisations being quite quiet. And that's a, an individual corporate journey. Um, the Black Lives Matter conversation is well overdue in lots of organisations. And I think for me, what it's thrown up for lots of all, lots of corporates is around the, the importance of social purpose in addition to their other corporate purposes. Um, and support for LGBT plus people and trans and non-binary people is part of that conversation right now. So knowing where your corporate stands and what they're willing to advocate for, or sometimes not, is equally a form of allyship. I think that's agreed. I think the corporate allyship is kind of the current um, battleground for trans uh, rights in in that, you know, we've seen um, magazines and articles write, write anti-trans articles, very anti-trans articles, um, and corporates have stayed fairly silent in many cases. I mean, if, if the article had been anti-black or anti-gender or anti-disability, you would see every corporate company screaming in the in this country about that article. There would be there'd be questions in Parliament, and people would be very upset and taken to the streets with banners. But you substitute the word trans into an article like that, and you hear almost silence. Um, so we do have a long way to go with trans rights in that people aren't um, as upset about them when somebody when a newspaper writes something that's patently untrue. And, and a lot of anti-trans people say to social media, you just don't see the calling out from a lot of corporate companies um, who, who say that they are trans inclusive and trans leaders. Um, so, you know, right now, Emma and I do a lot of training in allyship and we get it. A lot of a lot of individuals are fantastic allies and we love those people because that's why we march in pride with them. We love the networks that we work with. But a lot of corporate clients, they do a lot of work on trans inclusion, but going public is that last bastion of something they're not prepared to do at the moment. It's a lot of them sitting on the fence thinking, well, let's just see which way this, this trans thing goes. Um, does, is the anti-trans movement going to win or is the trans movement going to win? And really, there shouldn't be a, there shouldn't be sides at all. But um, a lot of corporate companies are sitting to see which way that will go. And that, that's very sad, really. I would love them to take a sort of, Emma says, a sort of corporate conscience and take a position. Absolutely. I, I always love every every year, beginning of June, when suddenly every organisation adopts the rainbow flag and then at any possible opportunity will just throw the LGBT community un, under the bus. And mm. the one the one thing that I would love to see, see more is people understanding the impact that this has and people actively making a decision to not give organizations their money and similarly if, if you are an employee of these organizations the you know try to make the change from inside the organization yeah yeah but also i've been in a similar situation where an organization i was previously part part of spewed a lot of anti-trans rhetoric and i tried having multiple conversations internally say, saying that this was having an impact both internally and externally, mm. um, and it got to a stage where, where I was like, actually, do you know what? You're not worth my capital as an employee. I'm yeah. not going to actively be making you money <laughs> when yeah. I don't agree with what you're representing. Yeah, yeah. and I've done something very similar to that, um, being part of an organization that didn't think trans rights are important, and I walked away. I mean, and that's what you have to do. You have to live, you have to live your life as pure as you can. 
Um, and, you know, obviously, if you have to make a living, you do have to work for terrible corporations sometimes. Um, but hopefully you can find one that is aligned with your values. Um, and, you know, that's what I've done. And I think everybody, you know, if I, that's what I think everybody should try and do. Because um, it makes your ha- it just makes your life a lot happier and you can sleep at night. And I think it's, and I think it's a really good example of um, internal corporate allyship where you're trying to change the corporate from within. Um, and having that conversation about, so what can I do? What can I do? And yeah. then ultimately making a decision as an individual, um, I've done as much as I can. Yeah. And therefore, you know, I've got a great phrase, you know, you, you need to pursue your personal happiness elsewhere um, because, you know, you can only do so much. But ultimately, by having that conversation, even though you might not have felt you've achieved a lot, you've at least raised the issue. What are some of the different levels of allyship? So for individuals, I mean, this, the three levels that we work at in our ally training is the individual, what the individual could do. And we've covered some of those, you know, writing letters to your MP, marching alongside us in pride, under, educating yourselves, listening to us when we need you, um, that, you know, filling in those surveys, as I mentioned. So, uh, you know, individual allyship is and being, you know, just taking on our issues and, and those three steps of being behind and alongside and in front as and when. So it's always being aware of what's going on in the space that you're an ally to. You're, and it doesn't stop at just at the workplace for an individual. It's obviously in, you know, in the bars and restaurants where we're allowed to go back there again. Um, it's outside the school gates. It's out with friends. It, you know, the ally, being an individual, individual allyship is, you know, quite a quite hard work, but it's very rewarding. Um, networks um, are exactly the same. They can do all the same things as individuals, education, run training events, and up will, up will, up will influence of senior leadership that isn't supportive. So networks can upward influence, um, bring about change that way. And they're also a good resource networks as allies because companies going for tenders and, you know, that kind of thing. will have to put LGBT plus or diversity data into their, their tenders. Well, the ally networks can help and ally networks and LGBT networks can help with that. So that's your sort of, you know, your middle level. Corporate allies, as we've said, really need to do all those things. I mean, corporates, corporates can write letters to the government surveys right now as a company. Um, recently, there was a, a you know Stonewall um, thing of um, trans rights or human rights, and about 150 companies signed a letter. That was amazingly powerful, brilliant. I mean, we think that was brilliant. But also, what would it be like if 150 companies had written to the government individually? Wow! Now that's powerful. You know, the government would really take note of 150 corporate tax-paying companies write to them say they're not happy about how trans people are being treated. So companies have, uh, you know, they have awareness, they are, they are legal entities in their own right, and they can um, act as with a moral conscience as, al- as allyship, as do networks and individuals. Um, it just takes that will. Uh, I mentioned in the introduction, you know, some of the varying levels of attack that the trans community are under. Could you uh, perhaps share some light on these and uh, the impact that it's having on the community? Right now in lockdown, I mean, the mental health of the trans and non-binary community, just looking at the forums, is 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 not great in lockdown. Some people are locked up with hostile family members. You know, unemployment rates are quite high in the trans community. We have a government that keeps questioning our trans and non-binary rights and not and and has doesn't have the will to roll them forward so that is affecting uh, you know even i will honestly tell you that i have mental health issues because of this i don't sleep i work really hard as an activist you know my whole life is living and working trans and non-binary rights and it is exhausting right now 
And I think that that's having a, a big effect on us, on our motivation, on our will. We're tired of filling out surveys. We're tired of trying to defend ourselves against non-trans people who don't understand our lifestyle. Um, and, you know, it's so unnecessary. Uh, the reason, some of the things, you know, obviously trans women in particular are questioned in our ability to take part in sport, what happens in prisons, which hospital wards we're on, our employment, women only list, toilets and changing rooms. It's this weird um, access that and challenge that we have. I mean, the, the anti-trans movement have just framed the, gender, the, the recent Gender Recognition Act um, self-ID review. Um, by saying that that will be used for, for men to go in to lose um, and, and, and attack women. Well, that's never, ever happened. A trans woman has never attacked another person in a loo anywhere in the world. There's no evidence for that. Um, men wouldn't use the act to do that because they already go into those places. And we know that as a community, but non-trans people don't seem to know that. So we are attacked consistently on an argument that's been framed by some very nasty little anti-trans groups. So that really does, it does feel like a very sinister um, world that we live in, especially when I, you know, and I've said to you before that I feel more unsafe now than I did 20 years ago when I transitioned. The UK has got very dark for trans and non-binary rights. Um, so there is a lot to be done and it is affecting the mental health and our well-being. But I will hand over to Emma now, who I know is going to give you a positive light here. Uh -huh. Well, uh, <laughs> perhaps not. I, I, I think in your question, um, Rachel's very, very well, um, talked about some of the attacks you know we can't walk past the fact that we have some um, uh, personalities who have waded into this conversation as well and i'm gonna you know call out jk rowling um, as somebody who's very high profile who's been a very successful writer being very public around her view of of the trans community um very interestingly, we were we were training in Hong Kong last week, and the question about J.K. Rowling came up as well. So we know that her impact is global, um, and it's caused the community a lot of hurt and a lot of soul searching around how they feel, the various forms of response. But in the light of all this um, um, negativity, both from the mainstream media both online, both with um, personalities wading in and a current UK government, which seems to be questioning our almost every move and right to exist. It's not surprising that right now <laughs> the impact on the community is not positive. It's, it's very negative. You know, I saw an amazing uh, tweet uh, last week from somebody saying the community is tired, battered and bruised um, here in the UK, you know, that we've been uh, seemingly on this negativity since about 2016, with successive macro issues coming up. Um, and I think for me, you know, the impact that Rachel's very um, openly shared is around mental health. It's around um, how people feel about themselves, and you know, the other self-harm, suicide, self-medication issues are only going to increase. Um, and they are heightened, I think, also through lockdown. So I wish I could be more positive about it, um, but this is where we are right now. Um, and you know, even though we do this for a living, you know, we're, we are tired of, of this continued need to defend ourselves. 
we much rather it be celebrated and supported rather than this need around justification. What would you like to see from political leaders? Well, I, we were so pleased to see, I mean, Emma and I have been jumping up and down on Biden-Harris for the last three weeks. I have been visualising blue, saying blue, blue, blue all the time, wearing blue clothing. <laughs> but I, uh, I would have, I forbid Emma from wearing any red for a week. Um, and it was so good to hear that because what was happening in America, the eradication of trans rights, right from pushing it back to sex-based rights from gender-based rights is what Trump was trying to do and eradicating trans people from the military in life. That was absolutely horrible. I mean, it was just, and Emma and I work in New York and we have had, you know, we felt that change as we've gone there. Um, what we were worried about was that that was being reflected here in the UK because American rights wash over into UK rights. In American firms we work in, you feel those changes. And I think our government were thinking, hmm, being able to trans people, hmm, that seems like a good idea, might get votes. Um, the British paper, we know the British media do it because it sells newspapers. We know that because we work in newspapers and the editors tell us it sells newspapers. Um, but the, we could see that our government, um, our sort of anti-equalities minister looking at you know, not moving trans rights forward. We could see that they were not in a pro. And and the minute when when the trans community were writing to our government and complain, complaining about gender recognition, there was a standard letter most of the MPs were sending out. And it well, we support trans rights, but we need to protect women. When you use that "we need to protect women" argument, then you know that they don't they don't support trans rights because there's no there's no um, risk against women from the trans community. It's nothing to do with that. And so what we would like to see is a prime minister that says we support self-ID like a load of other European countries and island abuse, you know, without abuse. We would love to see a prime minister actually call that and, or, and say trans people have rights and we are going to move those forward. Um, we see that in other countries. As you look all over Europe, you know, the deputy prime minister of Belgium is transgender. Lots of senior leaders in, 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 uh, in parliaments in Europe are transgender people in corporate leaders are transgender and non-binary but what we have in this country is just a discussion about toilets now that's the wrong framing and that's where our politicians are they're in the gutter uh, which i suppose is where they like to be but they are talking about trans rights uh, in a very negative light and I, I always say to corporates when you're nice to the trans people you're nice to everybody else well when the government starts talking about trans positive uh, trans positive statements you know that government is moral and pure because we are the last bastion and just on that, therefore, that's why Joe Biden's um, reference in his um, victory speech is so powerful. You know, it, it was Obama who mentioned it in the State of the Nation for the first time. Um, it is Joe Biden that has continued that tradition of positive support for the LGBT um, people in the US and more importantly, trans and non-binary rights. Um, so I think, you know, we talk about political leadership, we talk about, you know, senior political leaders setting the tone from the top, whether it's for a positive perspective, building hope, or a negative uh, pers perspective, you know, dividing and chaos and negativity, you know, that senior political leadership sets a tone within a country that others will follow. And, you know, we would love, as Rachel says, to see other political leaders setting a similar tone and advocating f more overtly for trans and non-binary rights. This current government with its part-time equalities minister um, is not in that place and, and quite, you know, remaining silent for so long 
and then making very negative comments here in the UK only has one impact, which is a negative impact. So seeing the president-elect um, make such a positive commitment that is heartfelt and consistent, he has always been consistently positive yeah. of LGBT+, plus, is so uplifting in a period, as we've been talking earlier in your previous question, where it feels quite dark. Yeah. So having a positive senior leader can stand up and say those things, I think is really important and can only help the global positive movement for trans and non-binary rights, we hope. We hope this is another tipping point back into the light, away from the dark. Absolutely. No, thank you so much both. I guess uh, to summarise, what would you like our listeners to take away for, from all of this? Well, Emma's going to answer this question, but the one I would just mention to car- to corporates. <laughs> you're in first. No, no, no. I just want to. <laughs> I just want to remind. I just want to remind. You know, it's my corporate. We we bang on about this to corporates all the time. That you know, if you recruit trans and non-binary people into your workforce, I mean, that makes the rest of the workforce happy because you know, as I said, if you're happy to trans and non-binary people, then you're not you're good to everybody, and. Um, and having a diverse and inclusive workforce is a happier workforce, better R&D. You're going to, your workforce is going to you know, go that extra mile. But your client base is going to, if you're, if you're a client-based company, well, if they see you're recruiting trans and non-binary people, trans and non-binary people are going to be your clients too. And remember those numbers, 4% of the population are trans and non-binary. Um, may not be, you may not see that visibility, but they are there. 12% of millennials are non-binary, 20% of Gen Z. That's a big client base. So if you're getting it right inside your company, you are going to have some fantastic clients. LGBT people, we make a big part of the population. You should be doing the right thing because it's going to be good for your business. So building on that, my advice to the listeners would be take away one thing from this conversation that you listen to and share it with one other person that you wouldn't normally talk to about this subject. Mention it, you know. I've I've heard this great, um, I've heard this great conversation. And I just want to share one thing that I learned. It's amazing where that can go, and you know, I call it a pebble in the pond. You know, you put a pebble in the pond and you cause a ripple. That one conversation can cause a ripple. It is amazing where that goes. So this is your personal allyship of doing that one small thing of sharing one thing you've taken away from our conversation today that you can share with other people. Amazing. Thank you so much. I think that's a really nice note to, to end on. So thank you so much for that. And um, thank you uh, so much for taking the time to speak with us today. Um, as mentioned, this was a, a very uh, introductory, uh, introductory uh, trans 101 uh, inclusion. Where can our listeners go uh, for a Trans 102? That's a really great question, and thanks for asking <laughs> it. So Global Butterflies uh, is a corporate training company. We will do your Trans 101. We'll train your HR function. We'll train your frontline staff. We'll review your policies. We'll help you with your healthcare. We'll train your ally networks. We'll put the T in your LGBT network. We'll train your senior leaders. If it's trans and non-binary related and your company needs to do it, then that's us. Global Butterflies, um, www.globalbutterflies.com. Take a look at our website, take a look at the clients we've worked with, um, and we'll be always here waiting for your call. We don't advertise, we run a vampire model, we don't crush your threshold until you invite us. So we will sit and wait, um, and when you're ready to talk to us, we'll be, we'll be there for you. Amazing. 
thank you so so much both for taking the time to speak speak with us. It's You're very welcome. Pleasure. It's been brilliant. Thank we really you. enjoyed it. Follow us to stay updated on our latest podcast releases or for more content and opportunity to connect with the fastest growing women in tech community, head to ascend.women-in-technology.com.